Former Japanese Prime Minister Nakasone Yasuhiro was officially laid to rest in mid-October in a state ceremony that was not without controversy due to its high costs and government requests for schools around the country to lower their flags in sympathy. The presence of a self-defense force honor guard also raised questions for some, even as it highlighted for others Nakasone's strong support of the SDF, along with his efforts to strengthen Japan's military alliance with the United States. Notably, 2020 marks the 60th anniversary of the U.S.-Japanese military alliance, which has seen Japan rebuild its military capability over the years, due in no small part to the efforts of Nakasone and later prime ministers, such as Koizumi Junichiro and Abe Shinzo. The United States and Japan have started major military exercises in a show of force against increased Chinese military activity in the region. Now, the Japan is one of the most powerful militaries in the world, and the Japanese commitment to collective self-defense with the United States is reinforced every year by joint military exercises. The latest of which occurred just weeks after the funeral of former Prime Minister Nakasone. All of this is seemingly at odds with Japan's popular reputation as a pacifist country and its famous Article 9 No War Constitutional Clause. A series of live fire drills have been held in a public display of the country's growing military power. And instead, fits into media narratives of resurgent Japanese nationalism and a public re embracing of its military, sparking fears around the region. The Pacific has drawn fierce criticism by neighboring countries such as China and Korea who fear the move as a potential return to Japanese aggression in the region. And that wraps up our look at international... What role did Prime Ministers like Nakasone Yasuhiro play in building up Japan's military alliance with the United States? How have personal relationships between Japanese Prime Ministers and American Presidents influenced the U.S.-Japanese alliance? How accurate are media narratives of Japanese pacifism and depictions of the Japanese military? And finally, how will a Biden presidency impact the U.S.-Japanese Security Alliance? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the U.S.-Japanese Military Alliance, I talked with Dr. Ellis Krauss, Professor Emeritus of Japanese Politics and Policymaking at the School of Global Policy and Strategy at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Krauss is the co-author most recently of Reluctant Warriors, Germany, Japan, and Their U.S. Alliance Dilemma, published by the Brookings Institution Press in 2019. I started by asking Dr. Krauss to explain where Prime Minister Nakasone fit into the longer history of the U.S.-Japanese military alliance. Sure. Nakasone, I think, was one of the three prime ministers of Japan in the post-war era that was strongest on beefing up Japanese defense and doing so in the context of the U.S.-Japan relationship. The other two were Koizumi Junichiro, who was prime minister in the early 2000s, and of course Abe Shinzo, who stepped down just this past year. So he fits in to that, <laughs> I guess you might call them that triumvirate or something like that, who, who were strongest and broke the most taboos about remilitarizing Japan. In Nakasane's case, what he did was, among other things, declared Japan to be an unsinkable aircraft carrier for the United States and Japan's defense. And he also extended Japan's defense of sea lanes out to 1,000 miles. Perhaps most significantly, he also allowed Japan and signed an agreement with the U.S. to transfer military technology to the U.S. And that's the first time Japan transferred military technology to the U.S. 
So he was uh, pretty significant. And Abe went even further, of course, later on. But you can see why the LDP, the Liberal Democratic Party, and the self-defense forces would uh, want to be at his funeral and why the LDP would allow them there. And, and as you mentioned, former Prime Minister Nakasone did have this very strong relationship with the U.S. in terms of the U.S.-Japanese alliance and also had a close relationship with U.S. President Ronald Reagan, not only in terms of overlap in their time of office, but also in terms of Nakasone's own Reagan-esque style domestic privatization policies and the close relationship relationship between the two, dubbed Ron and Yasu, yeah. even by the international press. Perhaps we could even say in a sense that the personal relationship between Ron and Yasu embodied Nakasone's own efforts to draw Japan closer to the U.S., as you were mentioning, both militarily and politically. So can you talk a little bit more about Nakasone's role and what he was doing in regards to the self-defense forces and what might we say it means for Japan's role as a U.S. ally? Well, first of all, let me just say, and I'll come back to this, that I happen to be a skeptic of these personal relationships between Japanese prime ministers and American presidents. As you mentioned there again, it's the same three prime ministers are known for having close personal relationships with American presidents, George W. Bush and Koizumi and Abe, of course, and Trump. They play golf together many times, for example. But if Republican presidents were nicer and had closer relationships with Japanese prime minister, in part it's because those three prime ministers were the same prime ministers who had the longest tenure as prime minister in post-war Japan political history. And second of all, they were the strongest on defense. So it made sense for an American president personally or not, to make nice to these Japanese prime ministers, because they were doing more for the U.S. than I think the U.S. had ever did for them in some ways. Nakasone was the first of these, but he was very limited compared to the next two, Koizumi and Abe, because there's a very strong anti-militarist subculture in Japan. It's not a majority of Japanese, but it is a strong subculture, a minority. And these people just absolutely do not want Japan to do more than defend itself. They are very afraid. In fact, I would say that even a majority may be very afraid of Japan getting involved with U.S. military adventures abroad that are not in Japan's interest. They're not pacifists at all. Japan hasn't really been pacifist since the 1950s. It has an extremely strong military now. I think most people don't realize that Japan has the second strongest navy in the Pacific after the U.S. It has six, and it's building two more of the most advanced Aegis warships in the world. The Japanese surface fleet of the Maritime Self-Defense Forces, which is what their navy is called, is in fact larger than the British Royal Navy. It has a very competent air force. It has 250,000 people in the military, and it's very strong. So, you know, Nakasone was more limited than Koizumi and Abe because the anti-militarism culture was much stronger back in the 80s than it was in the 2000s or today. So Koizumi and Abe were able to go much further than Nakasone, but he was the first to break these taboos, I think, in the post-war period. 
And speaking of those taboos that Nakasone was breaking, especially from the perspective of East Asian countries like China or South Korea, they were especially concerned when Nakasone broke the taboo of sitting Japanese prime ministers visiting the very controversial Yasukuni Shrine, which he did in 1985. I think he was the first one to do it as sitting prime minister, even signed his name as prime minister of Japan. And since then, these kinds of visits have been very controversial and, and have led to criticism from China and Korea. And Prime Minister Abe, for example, also was criticized for doing this. And so this seems very incongruous with Japan as being a pacifist country, as much as you're talking about with the military being so large, it also seems incongruous. And you recently published this book called Reluctant Warriors, where you're kind of doing this comparison between Japan and Germany, both of whom have somewhat pacifistic constitutions. Can you put those two in comparison with each other? And how do we reconcile this idea of Japanese pacifism with these expressions, maybe suggestions of nationalism and having such a large military? Absolutely. Thank you. In this book with uh, four of the co-authors, three Germans and another American, we exactly tackled this question. Germany, to a greater extent, even Japan, have been called pacifist countries in the media. And it, it frankly drives me crazy because they are not pacifist countries. It is true that Japan's constitution is pacifist. If you look at the famous Article 9, which is always the controversial part of the Constitution on Defense, it literally says Japan may not go to war and it may not maintain a military, period. It's a very short two-clause paragraph, and that's pretty much what it says. It's never been amended in the entire post-war period since the Constitution was adopted in 1947. And that gives the impression that Japan is pacifist. But the reality is Japan has been anything but pacifist for most of the post-war, as I said, particularly since the end of the Cold War under Koizumi and Abe, which stretched the limits of what Japan could do within the U.S.-Japan alliance. Now, they are still limited. Don't get me wrong. Japan's not about to become a militarist country. Japan is not about to take the place of the U.S. as the upholder of the international liberal order. But it has contributed to the defense of Japan substantially and the Pacific increasingly. And it will probably do more in the future. But it is not pacifist and it is still limited by public opinion which does not like Japan doing more than defending Japan, particularly with the rise of a, of a more aggressive China and a dangerous North Korea. The Japanese citizens have become much more acquiescent and in favor of the self-defense forces and to some extent building up Japan's defenses within reason, but they don't want the military budget increased. They do not want Japan to support the U.S. in combat overseas, anywhere but in the defense of Japan. Germany is very different, despite their having a somewhat similar constitution. The German constitution actually allowed for an army. It actually allowed for collective defense. That is, that Germany could go to war to support its allies in NATO. That's in the constitution. Japan has never amended its constitution to allow that. Abe put through a law that actually allows Japan to do limited collective defense of the U.S. under very limited circumstances, but he was the first to do that. So their constitutions have been different. Their development under the constitution has been different. 
while Japan has never amended its Article 9 or its Constitution at all, Germany has amended its basic law, its Constitution, 62 times as of 2019. And that included allowing German troops to go into combat in Afghanistan and in Bosnia. Although the Germans did very well, they were, the, I think, the third largest force in Afghanistan supporting the U.S., the fact that the war has dragged on and they've suffered 60 casualties has led to a backlash within German public opinion as well. But they have killed people and been killed in support of U.S. military and NATO. But Japan has never gone into combat, has never killed anyone, or has a self-defense force person been killed in the line of duty in combat since World War II. So they're rather different, and we explore how this difference developed, how their trajectories developed, despite both having anti-militarism subcultures and despite having more or less somewhat different peace constitutions. We're recording this interview the Friday before Tuesday, November 3rd, with the upcoming American election, of course. Yep. And so, you know, if we could kind of cast forward, knowing that this probably won't be published until several weeks after the election, how might a Trump re-election versus a Biden election, you know, how might this impact relations between Japan and the U.S., at least when it comes to the military alliance? <laughs> uh, don't get me started on what Trump has done to the international liberal order, but the Japanese media and political elites, particularly the conservatives, believe very strongly that Republican presidents are better for the Japanese than Democratic ones. And I happened just written an article with Brad Glosserman at Pacific Farm about what a myth this is. And we really mean it as a myth. It, it really isn't true that Republican presidents are particularly better for Japan than Democratic ones. And this, of course, becomes very important if Biden is elected. A former Japanese ambassador to the U.S. said that when administrations change in the U.S., the Japanese reaction is like opening Christmas presents from relatives on Christmas Day. Oh, it's just what I always wanted. That is, of course, their public reaction. Privately, however, Japanese political elites, particularly conservatives and media, tend to play up and believe that Republicans are better than Democrats. I just don't believe it's true. If you look at the record, you will see that, in fact, Ronald Reagan imposed more punitive tariffs and penalties on Japanese trade and trade friction than any other American president. Prime Minister Koizumi put restrictions on American beef despite their relationship. Trump has been the most severe on Japanese trade and payment of bases of any American president, whereas Democratic presidents have actually done better for Japan in some ways. When Clinton, for example, failed to get an agreement with Japan amidst mutual threats during the, his uh, framework talks in the early 90s, he just walked away. He didn't impose penalties on Japan. Obama was the person who first publicly recognized that the Senkaku Islands disputed with China were actually secured under the U.S.-Japan Mutual Security Treaty. So, you know, you can cherry pick any argument to make the argument that Democrats and Republicans are better than the other. The truth of the matter is that both Japanese prime ministers and American presidents do what's in the best for their national interests, despite the personal relationships. Those relationships can smooth communication, 
but they don't guarantee that the U.S., for example, will be softer on trade friction or let up the pressure on defense any more than Democratic presidents. I think Japan, under a re-elected Trump, would probably suffer somewhat less than some other countries. I mean, he has been nicer to Japan, believe it or not, than he has been to Germany, for example, where he's going to withdraw 15,000 American troops. He hasn't done that, but he has made these draconian demands on Japan, particularly, for example, in trade and automobiles, where he's threatened to have major punitive actions in the next negotiations. He's withdrawn the U.S. from the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Japan loved and that Obama put into place. Japan liked that agreement so much that even when the U.S. withdraw, it got the other 11 nations in the pact to continue it under a new name called the Comprehensive Trade Trans-Pacific Partnership. And so, you know, Trump will be very bad for Japan because of the man. Biden, on the other hand, has conflicting pressures, I think. One is that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and there's an article in the New York Times today about this, progressive wing of the Democratic Party is going to pressure him on trade, which they don't like because it hurts American workers. On the other hand, other moderate Democrats like trade and realize that it helps sustain our own affluence. So he will be cross-pressured on this. But there is something I think that very few analysts realize, that I've read anyway or heard, and that is because Trump's demands were so harsh on Japan and other countries, and so draconian in trade and defense, that any concessions Biden makes will be welcomed, I think, because they're better than Trump's. And that means that Biden has a lot of leverage to try and renegotiate Trump's demands and get concessions for the U.S. So I'm more optimistic that Biden will be able to do some of the things that Trump wanted, except not to the extreme, because he has this leverage compared to Trump. I'm Tristan Gruno, visiting assistant professor of modern Japanese history at Pacific University, and this has been another episode of Japan on the Record. Stay tuned for future episodes to hear scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Thank you for listening.